Welcome to Cover to Cover, a podcast featuring musical conversations about an album or song which has changed and enhanced someone's life. I'm your host, songwriter Matt Tarka. We humans connect with the presence of music in our own unique way, as an artist, a concert goer, through our headphones, or as something that simply lives in our everyday background. Our guest today is someone who comes to us from Rockville, Maryland, near Washington, D.C. He is one Richard Newcomb. Richard was born in Germany and has lived in Austin, New Orleans, Savannah, Salt Lake City, Utah, outside of Philadelphia, and San Antonio. Richard is a family man, a baseball guy, and self-professed workaholic. He's also a soothsayer and a very dear friend. He has chosen to steer our conversation today towards Jets to Brazil's debut record titled Orange Rhyming Dictionary, which was released on Jade Tree Records in 1998. Recorded at Eastleigh in Memphis, Tennessee, several bands such as The White Stripes, Wilco, Sonic Youth, Guided by Voices, Jeff Buckley, and The Promise Ring have all spent time in its vaunted hallways. Orange Rhyming Dictionary was produced and mixed by Jay Robbins of Jawbox with Stuart Sykes and mastered by Alan Duchesne. In terms of what is inspiring him creatively at the moment, Richard is mentally constructing a 1990s debrief album with a working title of, quote, Sunny Side Down, Songs for the Disenchanted. Richard prefers television shows with a dystopian narrative, such as Billions and Man in the High Castle. Richard, thank you very much for taking some time to be here today. Oh my goodness, Matt, I'm honored. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. I'm so glad we can do this and talk about this important record. So, uh, all right, without further ado, let's just jump right into our conversation. What made you choose this record? Well, I think, you know, I'd have to start by saying, you know, the very intense emotional connection that I have to the music, all of the songs. Um, if I look at it as a collective, it definitely holds its weight against any of the great albums I could really kind of put out there as a top five. Um, it's funny when I heard you mention, you know, the kind of pedigree that Easley Studios in Memphis has. I want to say Zeppelin Three was mixed there, um, which is another favorite record of mine, actually. I think. Awesome. Yeah. What's crazy is that whereas all of the other albums on my top favorite list are very popular albums that you know most people have in their collections. I feel as though this is one that is probably such a bright star, but not everybody, even vinyl collectors or even indie fans or Jawbreaker fans, have it and appreciate it, although so many people do. So that's another thing. It was, and that's what made it special at the time, I think. You know, it was something brand new, something completely different and not something everybody knew about. And a drastic departure from the sound that that Jawbreaker in particular was creating at the time. Uh, you know, I've heard, you know, one one journalist refer to it as, you know, just the project in general as too punk for indie and too indie for punk. That's absolutely right. I, I, I would agree with that 100%. And to that point, I didn't even realize it was Blake Schwarzenbach or Jawbreaker that I was listening to when I first heard it. Do you think it was because... You know, perhaps of the uh, the vocal intonation, because you know m- much of Orange Rhyme Dictionary. I mean, it's the the vocals are really punchy and up front in the mix, and you know, and, and sound a lot cleaner from previous music that he's recorded. Yeah, and I think stylistically too. I mean, it's definitely got a pop sensibility that I don't think was um, necessarily a part of the last of the Jawbreaker releases. But I think also the use of sound was so completely different. I've heard Blake say in interviews. 
oh my gosh, I get to use a Wawa pedal now, you know, and things that are just so um, out of sync with the the standard, you know, Les Paul Marshall, you know, yeah. do it fast kind of um, ethos that a lot of the Jawbreaker catalog has, uh, you know, it's just, it sounds completely different, right? Right. Uh, we're talking about Orange Rhyming Dictionary here on Cover to Cover with Matt Tark. And, you know, we've you know been talking about this gentleman here named Blake. We know who he is, but Richard, can you describe to us, you know, what Blake's role is within Jets to Brazil? Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, in a broader sense, I do think he very much is the poet laureate, so to speak, for my generation, people a little bit older than me, perhaps. Um, and it's just really such a phenomenal articulator of the kind of things, at least I was experiencing, you know, in the, in the nineties coming out of the nineties into the, into the Y2K era. Um, so I, I feel as though his role was definitely in a pragmatic way, in a practical way was to play guitar and sing. Right. But I think that the greater thing of it all and what makes it such a special record was the emotional relatability and the, the amazing descent that he conveyed through his lyrics was just unfathomable. Like the constructs of some of these lyrics, just amazing to think about that one person could come up with all that stuff. Stream of consciousness for yeah. sure. And to that point, it doesn't with maybe one or two exceptions. I don't think that there's any choruses on the entire record. I mean, it's all stuff. There's very few rhymes. Um, it's just really, really, really great in that way. It's almost like Kerouac. It's just very fluid um, very stream of conscious, in my opinion. Yeah, I can't think of any choruses off the top of my head. Perhaps there's certainly you know plenty of bridges where the lyrics you know will will certainly change. But yeah, just it, this real just kind of stream of consciousness, this real just fluidity to the to the lyrics. Uh, you know, there are references to you know to authors you know such as Jack Kerouac and Jawbreaker Records, and I wonder if that sort of writing that sort of creative approach, you know, continued to be pervasive throughout some of these early re recordings, excuse me, by Jets to Brazil. I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, he himself, you know, having studied extensively and then taught English, um, I think he's certainly probably a great um, curator of his influences. And, you know, it, it only stands to reason that we would see so much of them in his, in his work, right? It, I mean, it's just really, right. really much more than you would expect from you know, kind of a late 90s emo indie band, so to speak. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're talking a lot about Blake Schwarzenbach, the uh, lead guitarist and uh, principal lyricist and vocalist for Jets to Brazil. Um, Richard, can you tell our listeners who some of the additional musicians and players are on Orange Rhyming Dictionary? Absolutely. So this was kind of like the indie supergroup. And in my opinion, there were other players that had come out of the ashes of other groups. There was Chris Daly from I Want to Say Handsome. And then there was um, Jeremy Chaitlin from I Want to Say Texas is the Reason. And you would you could probably confirm that. That's right, isn't it? It's the other way around. Ah. Jer Jeremy was in Handsome. Jeremy played. <laughs> Jeremy was the guitarist in Handsome. And yeah. And, and Chris Daly uh, was the drummer for Texas is the Reason. You know what? I feel like I just lost on The Price is Right. <laughs> but it's all it's all good no one's I keeping think, track know, here each of them each of them to have the kind of spirit of moving their careers and their art artistic and creative endeavors forward in a new way um i feel that that's really palpable when you hear it it doesn't sound like any of those other bands it doesn't sound like anything i had heard at the time um and i 
would like to retract a, a little very casual comment that I made earlier about being emo. I don't really see Jets to Brazil as being emo the way I think of some bands, but I definitely think that they furthered and laid the tracks for a lot of the bands we heard on the radio around 2003 and four. Um, you know, that kind of were certainly influenced by their groundbreaking, in my opinion. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. Uh, so, you know, in various interviews that I've, you know, read with regard to uh, Chris Daly, the drummer's uh, reaction to uh, being a part of Jets to Brazil, everything was just so, it was just such a drastic departure from what he had been, you know, working on and, you know, where his goals were oriented towards with Texas is the reason before uh, they broke up after a signing with, uh, with some major label back in the late 90s. Yeah. Um, so because it was just so different, that that made him just want to continue pressing on with the band, so to speak. Yeah. And I know Jeremy was in really, really loud bands and hard bands, if you will. I mean, I think what I hear in this record is kind of like a, um, the spirit of revitalization. That's kind of hard to quantify, but you just, it just feels new and shiny and like, it's got some forward momentum to it. And I think it could have been anything. It could have been a, a hip hop record or, you know, heaven forbid a country record, but, um, sure. I think, um, what it effectively does, it captures that that positive spirit of change that they were all kind of going through at the time and the optimism that they probably felt by creating something new. And for me, that's very, very evident within the, strength, the songs, you know? Definitely. Can you describe for our listeners where you were when you first heard Orange Rhyming Dictionary? Absolutely. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was in, and this is funny, and this kind of shows how <laughs> how like marketing and promotion can actually work. Um, I was in Urban Outfitters on Wisconsin Avenue in Georgetown in DC. And I was with my wife and she was looking at something and I was standing there like an idiot, like I always do. And I heard something come over the intercom or the, the sound system at the store, I should say. And it was Orange Rhyming Dictionary. And it was the first song, the opening track. And it started from the beginning. And I like listened along with it. And I just couldn't believe my ears. For whatever yeah, crown, reason, crown of the Valley, right? Yes. And just yeah. everything about it. And I had no idea it was, you know, Blake Schwartz and Bach of Jawbreaker singing. I just knew that, oh my gosh, this is like right on time. I mean, it hit me like a lightning bolt. And once we left the store, I immediately walked. I, well, first I, first I asked the, the store worker, the clerk, what this was. And they directed me to like this wooden easel for lack of a better expression, where they had like six discs that they were highlighting in the store. And they, she pointed to it and she's like, Oh, it's, it's just Brazil in a way that was kind of like this. I'm sharing with you the secrets yeah. to the universe. And yeah, I love it too. Yeah. You it, know? It may, perhaps a very hushed tone too. Like, yeah, it was a very don't, insider don't, thing. Don't tell yeah, don't tell too many people too quickly. Right, right. Yeah. But, it was, but also with an air of knowing, like that this is really mm -hmm. good. It's like, yeah. oh yeah, that's this. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, it's aged cheddar. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. it's something yeah. that every that just it's dark chocolate. You know, whatever it is. And so I immediately left the store, and at that time there was a record store about a block away, and I went to it, and they thank goodness had it, and I bought it, and I wore it out, and I bought several copies since then, and it's just a great record. I wonder if that was, was this in the days of just out of curiosity's sake, DCCD? Was it that, might have that, been. It was right on Wisconsin, Georgia, yeah. no, like, like two yeah, or three yeah. blocks down. Yeah, I yeah. love that record shop. Yeah, they were very, re just really knowledgeable folks in there. I felt like I was the only one who didn't have the record at that moment, you know? So we've talked about how you discovered this piece of music. You, so you discovered it, you know, in that shop, in that store. What are your favorite 
tracks on this album and there are a whole host to choose from. And I'd also like to just ask a second question with that. And why are they your favorite tracks? That's so great. Well, um, I think that it's, you can probably appreciate this as a great lover of music. Certain songs become my favorites based on certain moods that I might be in or, or kind of micro things that I'm going through on any given day. Um, you know, I feel that they can be comforting if I'm going through a frustration or a challenge. Um, they can also be uplifting if I'm, I'm going through, um, you know, something that, that would require an uplift or they can be celebratory if something great has happened and I need something to continue or further that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think there's all that within this record. Um, there's some songs that I really, quite frankly, <laughs> can't listen to without having um, to kind of talk myself through, okay, Richard, you're not depressed. Don't worry about it. Things are great. Um, and conversely, you know, if I were to listen to it too much, I think it would probably have a, a maybe a, an adverse impact on my mood. Yeah, devastating. Or <laughs> yeah, you know, not 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 to not to a, a great extent, but to at least yeah. a partial partially. Yeah, but um, I, you know, I feel like the off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like the songs where he really goes deep and really becomes vulnerable about the things that he's going through. Like, I cannot believe like just how like with like say um, I type for miles. It's like note to self: no one cares. Your voice is average. And, and later in the song, I'm waiting. I'm, the call could come at any time. You know, I just see him knowing what we know about, you know, his major label um, disappointments and, mm-hmm. and kind of the different things he was going through and, you know, the end of Jawbreaker and the beginning of something new. All these things are really personal to him. And he talks about his songwriting. He really likens it to figure skating. Like, I've yeah. got to be better than everyone else. Yeah. Um, and then he's kind of, you know, the devil's advocate. You, you don't write so much as type. All these things are so hyper-personal and there's threads of that through the entire record. And there's other things like, um, like lemon, yellow, black. To me, I see it's open to interpretation and and I'm sure Blake has the definitives of what he actually wrote it about. And it might even be out there on the internet. But for me, it's about being in um, kind of a salesy conversation with, you know, record label execs, specifically major label record execs. And like, you know, we hear you make great waiters. Don't be so German. Yes, and like, um, yes. you know, and then like, you know, maybe talking about at the time, I think, you know, and that's a whole different podcast, but I think there was a culture kind of going out of the tragedy of the, you know, maybe certain, certain drug aspects of the drug culture changing, because I think it was realized after so many important people became uh, statistics and tragedies that things were changing there. And I think there's certainly reference throughout the record. But I think also, you know, they're talking about yellow. I, I don't think it would be unreasonable to interpret that as being some form of intoxicant. And they're talking about going and getting some, you know, half the math, double the myth, pick it up, prick up the usual amounts, our finest scotch yeah. to wash it down. Yeah. And it's, you know, you can almost see them sitting in some great office in New York with these not rich musicians and all these old guys that probably, you know, signed every disco act in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know recording them in a really insincere way and they don't necessarily have their best interest at heart. And when he's talking about being wartime heroes, hating this peacetime march, I think of that as being a great band that goes out to an adoring crowd every night. Now they're off the road. They don't have a label or they're working on getting a new one and they're hating this peacetime march. I mean, I just, to me, that's just palpable. And that was something that was very real. 
and, and there might be some people in the audience that there's a resentfulness towards and you know you know daughters of the revolution you're freezing in your furs well-heeled atrocities show the finishing school is done there's something very ominous and pretentious when i you know think of that portion of of, of that lyric of the bridge yeah and and for once in your life man just think the appropriate answers are wrong right you know it's like it's just it's funny because to me it it's it's like I can just see the room. It's just like it's it's very clear vision of that, you know. There's there's a, there's a complete lack of indifference by you know the people that should be paying attention to what you know constitutes. It's just a very important record. Are there any other songs you know besides "I Type for Miles" and, and "Lemon Yellow Black"? There's there's plenty to cover here. You know, w- one song that really stands out for me is is uh, "Sea Anemone." Some of the some of the imagery in particular, you know, was I one you wished upon, burned out like a light bulb when you turned me on. I I, I wonder if that is kind of reactionary to some things that you know were going on in in, in Blake's former band. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think, um, yeah, I, I I would I would I think that one to me it almost seems like somebody sitting in an apartment, you know, with the ashes of his band, looking in the rear view, everything's in shambles. You can even keep the name. It never suited me. Oh. Looking at the shower rod, can it take my weight? So he's gut- contemplating suicide in that moment. Gut wrenching stuff. Yeah, he's it's, yeah, and yeah. that's like really, really. I mean, super personal stuff. And I think, yeah, absolutely. I, I just think it's an extension of all that stuff. And I think whether you, you know, granted, okay, the cross section of society that were signed to a major label record company and then you know had a great band that didn't probably go as far in the short term that it should have and then you know they're sitting in an apartment or whatever that's a very small subsect of the of the listening audience right but i think most yeah. people could identify with disappointment with that contemplative nature of really just being razor focused on what's wrong and not getting outside and opening up the window and those kind of things but really just obsessing and um, you know i think that a lot of people identified with it i know i certainly did you know, speaking of uh, speaking of opening up a window, uh, th- for some reason in my mind that takes me to I believe the third track on the record, Orange Rhyme Dictionary, called "Resistance is Futile," and, <laughs> and that, and you know, and I'm thinking about just the concept of you know something that had been in you know the consciousness for some time for several decades, but this idea of something watching you, and you know, the the lines "You're never too small for our attention." You watch TV while we watch you that sort of repetitive nature of that song and care to extrapolate on that. You know, I was, you know, also just thinking about just that the sort of coda or outro to that song where, you know, there's this helicopter like effect and maybe that's some sort of guitar pedal that, that, that Blake was, you know, using to create that, or maybe that was some kind of studio creation, but that definitely the idea of, of being watched was, yeah. was on his mind lyrically. Totally. And I, and I think I feel as though the, the literal interpretation, it would be safe to say that, at least for me, um, would be that you know he's being monitored by some psychiatric health staff in in, a, in an insane as as they were insane asylums. I'm sure there's a yeah. more euphemistic way to put that. But um, you know, I, as you were as you were kind of describing through it, I couldn't help but think how prophetic it was for the age we live in now, yes. 20 years later, where. Alexas and Google Earths and Series and all these people and Nests and all these other yeah, things. Ring. <laughs> no, right. They know yeah. everything about us. Whereas at least my generation, the idea was for <laughs> to maintain a certain degree of privacy. Sure. Um, sure. I so, mean, yeah, I, I don't yeah. know. I don't know about you, but you know, if I'm having a conversation with somebody, 
I, you know, sometimes I'm wondering if my computer is, is, is recording. And I know that might sound a little, little hokey to some, but when you think about pop-up ads, if you're, you know, just viewing just a, a, a web page of whatever, you know, it's like, what if I was, you know, say talking about, oh, I don't know, like some clothing company. And all of a sudden, yeah. that clothing company is showing up in the right-hand margin of whatever social media page I'm on. That's just, that's creepy. Uh, you know? Right. It, no, it's haunting. And with some of the higher-end stuff, it's like I always know when my wife's been looking at the Tiffany website because we'll get something in the mail two days later. Right. Um, so <laughs> it's like, you know. And, and to me, it's the solace I take in that stuff is that I know it's created by algorithms and by ones and zeros and bots. There's not a room of former CIA agents somewhere that are monitoring my, little old me, my um, internet shopping or my you know Facebook ad preferences or something. It's all done automatically. And I ne- would never in a million years discuss the kernel secret recipe oh, <laughs> within a shot of Alexa, you know? Right. You know, nothing yeah. important is going to get discussed in front of a, a computer microphone. Um, mm-hmm. But, but all the same, it's a, it's a different it's a different universe, and you know, we could, it's crazy. It is. It's it, it could be. It's definitely another conversation to be to be certain. Totally. Yeah. Any other songs you'd like to discuss? I mean, I mean we have we've really got the, a pick of the litter right now with Starry Configurations, yeah. Chinatown. You know. Chinatown is brilliant. I mean, I I mean, I love, I literally love every single song on the record, and I think that's why it's my favorite album, but um, or one of them anyway. But I think that Chinatown is just so great, and for me, that's just so. You can hear the burnout that, and yeah. just the exhaustion. Yeah. It's like that he's going through yeah, that jagged guitar like, riff too. Really sets yeah. the mood at, at the beginning. Yeah, and you know everything about it is just. For me, that's a great, great, great song. And to see it, him perform them, perform it live for the first time, I mean, it was just so great. I mean, it's it's a great song. I really do think one song that I think stands out for me is um, Conrad. Oh, yeah. For the use of sound, you've got the square, square wave tremolo, which is something he did use, at least I think he used on... Um, maybe like accident prone or something like that. It, it has a precedent and it's not so outrageous, but to use it in such a primary way or such a fundamental way in the way the song is structured, because it starts out and it really sets the tempo for the entire song. Mm-hmm. And then you've got like this kind of dance sensibility, hi-hat pattern, you know, four on the floor, yeah. Charlie Watts emotional rescue vibe going sure. <laughs> for that song. But they're talking about somebody checking into a hotel mm-hmm. to commit suicide, I think, or the conversely, I thought it was always, again, referencing the challenges of the nineties culture with, um, intoxicants. I always thought that that was somebody going to a hotel room to detox. But I think in fact, it's somebody going to a hotel room to commit suicide. And that makes it even more deep. Yeah. My, more my, dark, my, my thoughts popular. sat with the latter of what you just said about the concept of, you know, suicide. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but to write that, to, to write that and to put it in a song with very poppy yeah. verses, but when it gets to the what would be the chorus, it, it talks about um, double-edged and super blue. Um, Vertically letting the light and, through you. Yeah, yeah. A- angels, angels, if I try to quote it verbatim, but so, there are odds on you, no, not quite, that they should, what they should do, only that they can't quite tear themselves from the view. You know, it's just amazing. You almost see yourself looking down on somebody in like a Motel 6. Yes, um, who's apologized to the motel maids and has a pocket full of medicine. Mm. 
and you know has paid for the week up front with the hotel and it's just like oh my gosh it's just crazy oh yeah it's it's heavy for lack of a better word you know that that, yeah. that song truly does leave me speechless when i listen to it i'm just i just it's it's heavy stuff what other songs can we talk about um you know we could king medicine king medicine the bargain basement lunatic to- who do you think the bargain basement lunatic is in this song uh, <laughs> i don't know but it, it all makes sense you know and it kind of builds it kind of builds from just very kind of like topical um, know that you'll soon go crazy kind of um, didactic advice to um, you know, at the end, you know, it's just the music builds with it and you've got this great crescendo um, you know, King medicine, every four hours, the subject loves you. Right. You know, so I think there's a reveal that every four hours you need, the, um, you need the next fix. Right. So there's like a lot of that. And at the beginning, it sounds like he's maybe sharing. So, okay, so this is what this looks like to somebody who um, may be at a different stage in the process than the person who's writing in first person, which I think we know now isn't to be him necessarily. And I don't know. It's just crazy the way the song builds with that conversation evolving within the context of the lyrics, Yeah, I'm w- in my opinion. I'm with you. I think it's somebody that's just trapped in this just proverbial state of chaos, a proverbial sense of things are things are coming to an end and the, and you know one of the lines that stuck out for me was now you're selling off the house so you can buy the farm that and let the light in through your arm mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm. which to me is indicative of heroin if, if we're being direct right yeah or or somebody that's just in a maybe somebody that's that's laying in a hospital bed and there's just there's there there's no hope on the horizon and various plans are being made to to move forward with whatever you know, whatever that person needs from family, friends, what have you. That's just, for me, that's, that's another lyric that really just kind of stands out there and just continues to, to, to tell this, you know, really agonizing story. That's a great interpretation. And that's not, that's not a, um, that's not something that I don't, I know, I think would have, I would have been able to come to on my own, but it, it totally resonates now that you've said it. We're talking with Richard Newcomb here on uh, Cover to Cover with Matt Tarka, and we are discussing Jets to Brazil's Orange Rhyming Dictionary. Uh, last but not least here, in terms of various tracks on the record, I, I want to bring up the final track, which is Sweet Avenue. I, I have heard people you know, use this as a first dance for a wedding. I've heard people wow. just, yeah, really just... It's a it's a really powerful song. It's it feels very very bare bones and and kind of a forerunner to different things that would appear on the second record titled Four Cornered Night. But you know you know Sweet Avenue is just one of these songs that just it, it gives off the impression that somebody has gone through a really difficult breakup. But at the same time, one of the characters in the story is able to find some sort of positive reflections from from that from that particular relationship you know well think how great it is too that they saved that for last because i think it really is such a nice way to close the record if they hadn't done that Mm -hmm. i feel like you know it would have um it would have ended in a very because really the one right before it was let's see i typed for miles which the last lyrics of that were you keep effing up my life Mm -hmm. you keep effing up my life and like this very you know uh cacophonous um loud ending and then they bring this which is kind of like the thank you for showing me the life inside of me it was dying to get out i love that yes and there's so many of those kind of lines in this record i mean there's just if you were to just kind of 
itemize the lines that you could use independently in your life yeah. and just throw them out there, there would the list would be a mile long. There's just so many turns of phrases that beg for greater analysis or for you know interpretation. They're just they're so this record is chock full of it. But it's specifically in that song, you know, so much of it is you know this gratitude for oh my gosh. Yeah. With tears of Everything gratitude, I like my latitude. Cross town train, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's right. That is ab- yeah. Oh, it's such a- what a nice way to close it and to kind of like seal the album with something positive and be like, you know, the last forty five minutes of this record were me talking about everything that's wrong, and then this last little gem is kind of points to it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. Yes, yes. You know, I, there's there's another line in there that that stands out for me. And I wonder if it was, you know, kind of a reaction to things that were happening earlier on in that decade when the tobacco industry was on trial, you know, this whole idea of, you know, a, a cigarette can seduce a nation with its smoke Huh? Coming down my tired throat scratches part of me. That's purring softly stirring. You know, that's an interesting way to look at it. I always felt that, um, the cigarette was an extension of him and his, persona and his, his vocal delivery and those things. But I think he was trying, in, from, in my opinion anyway, he was talking about the possible scope of the record and building an audience. Like, can I win over a fan base? Can I build an audience with this new stuff? Will it seduce a nation with its smoke? Can I, you know, will I be able to gain that kind of exposure with what I'm putting out there, you know? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So... If you had to just pick one track off of this particular record, can you tell our listeners a little bit how or, or why it inspires you? Thank you for that, Matt. I think that, you know, I'd have to go back to the very, very beginning, the first song, um, because I think it's kind of an amalgam of all the different threads of themes and so forth that reveal themselves track by track, kind of in the first one. And the kind of dichotomy like uh in the kind of uh, kind of illustrations that the words and the lyrics create for me it almost reminds me of the doors like you know kind of early early career doors like the end or something mm-hmm. like that break on through you're seeing colors you're seeing things you're visualizing these things um in your head as you're kind of going through it and it's like um you know, thought we had the lock in, in 64. Now the maid owns the house next door, swims in the pool she used to clean. Like I see like this crown of the valley setting. Like I see people eating a conventional breakfast with their happy pills and like yeah. all these things. And it's just so, it's so tangible for me. Um, but I also like that he talks about, oh God, quit tearing the roof off of this experimental bathroom. Mm-hmm. Again, to me, that's referencing a drug culture reference. It's the only thing that's halfway mine, you know, and kind of talking about the thought that something that could be unhealthy in that way would still be, you know, kind of a possession is kind of yeah, not for unsettling. Yeah, not not for your podcast. prying or lying eyes. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a portion and, of that. And I just yeah. think that the way the use of sound, the fact that it's got a poppy thing, the wah wah pedal we talked about, um, it's just it's a great entry point for the record and for what we're seeing for the next tracks. And as a side note, I really do feel that this, I'm so glad that this predated the iTunes, Apple stuff, because there really was, I feel, some serious attention given to the sequencing 
And you can put this record on and listen to it cover to cover, no reference or pun intended, and it all makes sense. You've got ebb and flow. You've got emotional highs. You've got emotional lows. There's payoffs and rewards. There's things that might be a little bit harder to absorb. It all makes sense. And I think that's one of the things that makes it a great complete work. One thing I really, you know, would love to add to to everything about Crown of the Valley that you're that you're saying here is that microphone feedback at the very beginning of that song. I'm just imagining Blake, Jeremy, and Chris just all setting up their equipment before they start playing these songs live and opening with that and just, you know, saying this is new. We're feeling things out. We're going to see where, you know, where these ideas carry us. And we're just going to kick that guitar, for example, into overdrive or what, what have you. And really, and it goes, you're absolutely right. And one thing I appreciated the first time I heard it was it goes from like um, kind of a lo-fi monophonic to stereophonic at the intro of the, the drum thing, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. it opens up and then all of a sudden it expands the speakers left and right. And for me, that was like, they opened a door. It's like they opened the control room in the studio, that yes. door. And all of a sudden you're hearing things in proverbial technicolor. Whereas before it was something that was kind of, you know, very narrow. And I think that maybe is metaphoric for what they were doing with this record and their careers and their creative collaboration as a whole. Maybe, I don't know. And, um, but at the very least it sounded really cool. It really did. And it also kind of, to me, wasn't completely out of sync with, some of the stuff to follow, like you heard that stuff and like pop rock, like I'm thinking like certain Bush songs maybe, or like, like Gwen Stefani's No Doubt or, you know, little things like that where you go from lo-fi to Mm hi-fi or narrow bandwidth to stereo. It wasn't uncommon in that generation that followed. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, I like to wrap up our conversations with this final question. We live in a universe now where information and music can be quickly accessed in the palm of our hand or with a click of a few buttons. We, we all you know, have access to these kinds of devices. Even in the 21st century, artwork will remain a cornerstone with each newly released single or album. What is conjured up in your mind when you look at this particular album cover? It's perfect. It's orange. It's just absolutely it's, perfect. It, it, yeah, mean, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I think they chose really well. I mean, it's... Uh, and orange was a popular color at the time. I'm sure, sure as it is now, but you know, I think it was garbage 2.0 orange and yeah, like, so. you know, yeah. it was a cool color, yeah. right? It was kind of like that, you know, Y2K green, you know, it was around, right. but like the fact that it was orange and then there's the additional entendre of there not being something that rhymes with orange mm-hmm. and you've got, so you've got a couple things in play, but it's just like, you could look at a stack of records and you know where this one is because it's orange. <laughs> yes. You know? Yes, you do. But it's perfect. It's just one of those records that is just like, it looks exactly like it should. I mean, think of like your favorite, favorite records and like the dusk jet. Like, I don't know for me, if the, if the cover art is out of sync with the material, it doesn't make the material any less viable, but if the cover works for the material, it completes the package. And I think that's what happens here. Could not agree more. Does this particular record transport you back to that era you know in which this music was created does do you think this like you think the cover art was just a real accurate representation of things that were happening in the late 90s uh i I think i think i would have to say i don't think the cover art because it's so basic necessarily is like jackson brown's the pretender let's say Mm -hmm. to 
as, as a contradiction, or maybe even the Beatles Sergeant Pepper with all the psychedelic stuff. I will say that I think it's perfect for the record. And I don't, you know, I'm thinking of other maybe contemporaries that had released stuff in the late nineties. I don't really think that the record, it's not like Roxy music or something where you're going to buy the record because of the album cover. Um, but I do think that it's absolutely perfect for what it is. And to your, the first part of your question, it does transport me back to when I first bought the record. But the danger in this is it's been such a staple in my listening life since I bought it over the last 20 years. It's not attributable to any one year or season or anything like that. It may be attributable to like a decade um, where I listen to it as a favorite on and off, you know, every week. Um, so that's where there's like a certain blur of art and life perhaps. But um, I definitely think that it's one of those things where it was built to be somewhat timeless in that it's not like they pulled out every trick in the book for, it's not like Garbage 2.0, which I referenced earlier. To me, that sounds like a Pro Tools record, a good Pro Tools record, but a Pro Tools record that Butch Vig produced right when he produced it that year and everything else that followed sounded just like that. And then now stuff doesn't sound just like that. And when you listen to it, it sounds like it did when it came out. Mm -hmm. Does that make any it sense? Makes, yeah, it makes plenty of sense. Yeah, very. There's enough with the with the way these songs are written and the way they're performed, which is flawless. These guys were so rehearsed when they walked into that studio. All they had to do was capture something great. They didn't have to go in like, you know, do we do it at this tempo? Do you know, it's not like the Rolling Stones. You've probably seen the B-roll footage of them mm -hmm. working out like uh, Sympathy for the Devil, where they're playing at all different tempos and there's a drum part that got axed and all these other things. I don't think it was like this organic concoction. I think like these guys had really road tested these songs and knew that they were going to work and knew what they wanted to say and how they wanted to say it. The goal then was just to capture it in a really good way, which they did exceptionally well. The guitar sounds are phenomenal. I'll put them up against any 70s rock record that used the same equipment. Mm -hmm. um, it, sounds, it sounds great. So I, I feel like to answer your question, um, it doesn't take me back to the year it was produced. It's much more timeless than that. And I think that's why we're talking about it 20 years later. Well said. Richard, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you so very much for coming on the program and sharing this music, which resonates with you in such a deeply profound way to this day. Thank you so much, Matt. I am so thrilled to be here. And you know what? It's been awesome talking music with you. Thank you so much, Richard. All right. Thanks so much to Richard Newcomb for being with us today. For all you listeners out there, thank you. And please remember to hit that subscribe button on that device which you listen to your favorite podcasts, whether it's Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, or really anywhere you get access to your favorite podcasts. Take a moment to tell friends and family about our show. And feel free to drop us a line at hello at covertocoverconversations.com. Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Jarrett Nicolay at Mixtape Studios in Northern Virginia, and we hope you discovered some new music, perhaps rekindled your love for an old forgotten song, and shared a good moment with us today as we continue to sonically explore a world from cover to cover.